Maya, the bridge to the multi-chain future of blockchain, a future inspiring our past. Welcome to Maya Protocol, a future inspired in our past. Our native coin, Cacao, is a bridge to the multi-chain future. Our open source decentralized exchange seeks to increase adoption of crypto's economic independence philosophy, continue Satoshi Nakamoto's legacy, and show that LATAM can effectively contribute to the future of blockchain. Visit mayaprotocol.com to learn more. I'd like to start with a brief introduction about what Maya really is. Maya is a decentralized liquidity protocol, hard forked from Thorchain, that enables cross-chain swaps without the need to peg assets. That's a mouthful. So let me break it up a bit in plain English. It allows you to swap between different assets, such as Bitcoin and Ethereum, without the need of any central authority. Instantly and cheaply. It might sound like it was possible before, but surprisingly and seriously, no. So let me digest it a bit. The first and most important word is decentralized. 95% of transactions today are done in centralized exchanges. When we're talking about a movement that was born from the ability to have authority over your own coins, then this doesn't make any sense. We are under the decentralization of Bitcoin, under this decentralization of Ethereum, but then when we transact among each other, we are totally fine with doing it through a central authority. We believe this is not sustainable and that over time, the market will tend towards decentralization. Then we talk about the word protocol. And this is a very interesting word since it's what basically all blockchains are. A set of rules, steps, a recipe, an algorithm, which basically tells the nodes participating in the network what to do and how to do it. We also use the word liquidity because when we're talking about a decentralized exchange, we need a deep-rooted liquidity to be able to exchange between assets. The cross-chain word is also very interesting. Right now, there are other decentralized exchanges, but different to Maya, they live on top of a blockchain and they enable transactions only of tokens of that blockchain such as ERC-20 tokens on Ethereum. Finally, we do not peg assets. That means when you're transacting Bitcoin for Ether, it's real native layer one Bitcoin for real native layer one Ether. This is very important for the future of crypto since it allows for compatibility between different cryptocurrency restrictionless, permissionless, frictionless. So let's go through the definition again. A decentralized liquidity protocol, hard forked from Thorchain, 
that enables cross-chain swaps without the need to peg assets. The bridge for the multi-chain future. So before we continue, I would like to talk about how we came here, how we got here. And uh, we believe there's, there has basically been four main technological revolutions. The first one is Bitcoin's proof of work, obviously. The second one is Ethereum's smart contracts. The third one is Tendermint's consensus tool. And the fourth one is a decentralized exchange cross-chain, such as Thorchain and Maya. So I'm going to go one by one to kind of detail them a bit. Bitcoin's real innovation was how do I create consensus in an anonymous internet setting? If you know on internet, you can copy paste anything. So if you kind of say, okay, let's have consensus to vote, then someone can simply just create lots of accounts and vote with each of them and suddenly one person is voting a hundred times so that that clearly doesn't work and although there were some things like cryptographic signatures and other stuff going on when bitcoin came about the real innovation was consensus and how bitcoin manages consensus is actually quite simple people are all trying to solve math puzzles on their computer automatically with code and whoever gets the math puzzle first gets one vote. The issue is this math puzzle is very difficult and the, the difficulty of the math puzzle can be changed such that we can adjust the time that the whole world gets to randomly get a vote once every 10 minutes. That way, if you have a lot of computers, you get to vote more. If you had less computers, you get to vote less. But since it's permissionless and anybody can join at any time and put more computing power, then there's no cheating unfair way. So then if many people have many a lot of computing power to vote, they're all interested into the long-term future of the currency and it's very difficult to mount an attack. What would it take to attack Bitcoin? It would have to have 51% of the computing power of the network, which is unfeasible, therefore secure. Then Vitalik Buterin came about and he had a great idea. He said, look, if we're already transacting coins, why don't we also transact code? The principles that the blockchain in Bitcoin has is it, 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 the past is immutable. You cannot change what happened before. So if we have code instead of coins. This code is also immutable and it can be executed the same way every time since it cannot be changed basically functions like a smart contract, which is why they were, the, the name stuck. You came into a contract, it's a code, it's always going to do the exact same thing objectively. And there we go. This innovation gave way to thousands of companies that basically do things on Ethereum using these smart contracts, such as lending, video streaming, among others. Then other guys from Cosmos came about and said, look, this is all great, but we need to find a way to not use so much computing power. Maybe the vote should not be the computer power itself. Maybe it can be the stake you have of the coin that we're talking about, which is a bit recursive. But if there's some initial belief and investment and the, the coins have a cost, then it makes a lot of sense. The, the main 
players here, in my, in my view, are, are Cardano, Polkadot, and Tendermint built applications. The great thing they did for the world is they created a very simple blockchain protocol such that anybody can actually build their own blockchain using their tool. Then Thorchain came and found a way to use this Tendermint consensus protocol to create what we believe is the greatest protocol for decentralized exchange. Now, other benefits they have is instead of using this kind of consensus way of the longest chain wins that Bitcoin and Ethereum have, they created a much more simple Byzantine fault tolerant protocol where 67% of nodes have to agree on something before they actually push the block forward. What that creates is instant finality, which uh, is great. Normally on Bitcoin, you have to wait around an hour, six blocks for kind of being certain that the transaction actually came through. In this case, it's not. As soon as a block goes forward, that block has already 67% of consensus of nodes, which is very powerful when we're talking about fast transactions. And then we come to the final revolution in our mind, which is Thorchain and Maya, decentralized exchanges, which we believe are the most powerful there are in the market. Protocols like Uniswap, Balancer, Aave also facilitate exchange, but they work on limited blockchains and inside the blockchain. For instance, if you're talking about Uniswap on Ethereum, you can just trade ERC-20 tokens, which they can sometimes be a wrapped asset representing an asset from another blockchain. But like we said, it's not the native token itself, which complicates things in, th in ways we will detail later. So those are the four revolutions that brought us here. Now we know how we got to the technological revolutions to get to Thorchain and Maya. But I would like to explain a bit more of Thorchain's history, the great innovation, and uh, the reason why we, we leave uh, their protocol is one of the most important breakthroughs. First of all, Thorchain is an open source protocol. It has an MIT license. Their code is available online. You can read through it. And it was born uh, during a Binance hackathon in 2017. There they got a grant. Then they did an IDO where they issued tokens to the public in the Binance chain. So they created Rune, their coin, and basically investors could get Rune, although Thorchain itself didn't exist yet. Then they also created some runes in Ethereum so they could get access to more liquidity. And they actually created their first actual blockchain in 2020. But this blockchain still wasn't cross-chain. It just was able to transact Binance tokens, which is kind of a problem because once April 2021 came about and they actually created the blockchain, uh, the, which is multi-chain asset for Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all the rest, there were three runes in existence. They have the Binance token rune, they have the Ethereum token rune, and the actual native rune on Thorchain, which is something we find a bit confusing and something that Maya will not have with its coin Cacao. And this protocol was fresh and new. It was totally different to what had been before since all the other protocols were actually built on top of other blockchains and were limited to one blockchain. 
And the reason why it took so long to consolidate is because all of the breakthroughs we discussed last episode needed to happen before we came here. We're talking that Tendermint being very new as well. Tendermint is actually still a work in progress, such as their IBC protocol, which enables other types of functionalities for Tendermint build chains. And in the end of the day, the market is huge. We're going to talk about the decentralized exchange market in episode six. And there we will talk about the huge market, but ThorChain is today worth around $2 billion. Um, and it's still just a, a drop in the bucket of what the whole market is. And they need backup. And that's who we want to be. And why does ThorChain win above all others? And why we decided to fork from them and not from another protocol? Well, we first have to explain how they work. So before we explain how ThorChain works and why it's great and why then Maya decided to emulate them, we have to understand first how other decentralized exchanges work to compare. Now, there are, in our mind, five types of exchanges today available. The first is decentralized systems. Another one is a decentralized order book or ledger, which people call atomic swaps. Another one is liquidity pools, but using oracles. Then automatic market makers. And finally, one-to-one -one continuous liquidity pools that enable cross-chain swaps, which in this case is ThorChain and Maya. So we will go one by one, kind of talk about the trade-offs. First of all, we have the centralized system, which is obviously not desirable. We're talking about a philosophy of crypto, which loves decentralization, loves independence, but 95% of our exchange goes through centralized system. Doesn't make any sense. Obviously, these systems are very fast. They're very cheap since they're centralized and they're easy to integrate since it's basically just backend, uh, typical backend without having to kind of worry about blockchains. The biggest issue is that when you're using a centralized system such as Bitso, Binance, Coinbase, Kraken, they have the custody of your coins, not you. So when they say that you changed Bitcoin for Ethereum, they always had the Bitcoin and Ethereum themselves. They just say that they owed you Bitcoin and now they owe you Ethereum. And the problem is their backend is not secured by blockchain technology. Their backend is just backend. So there's obviously issues with that. But we don't, we don't want centralization. We want decentralization. So we move forward. After a while, uh, people, well, they were always transacting peer to peer. So I would call a friend, say, look, I'll send you 100 Bitcoins. You send me a few bucks. And there's that. But when you're trying to exchange hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, that's not scalable. You cannot find people all the time that will be open to sell to you if you're talking about peer-to-peer. -peer. So then the atomic swap game started where you would kind of say that you wanted to sell, I don't know, 100 Bitcoins in exchange for 2,000 Ethereums, Ethers. And then some people would say, okay, I'll, I'll buy two Bitcoins. Another one would say I buy five. But everything was happening in a decentralized fashion and it happened directly. The trade-offs here is it's not immediate. So if you were 
if there's a lot of volatility in the market, you want to exit or you want to buy something before it booms, then the price will be changing while the order book gets fulfilled. So that's not desirable. Another problem is it's a lot of exchanges. So it's not just one exchange and one fee. Every transaction that happened between you and the other people had a fee. So it, it becomes a bit more expensive. So then that's also not desirable. So then we kind of copied something from the traditional market, which is exchange houses, where you can change dollars for pesos, pesos for yuans, yuans for euros, and kind of emulating that when you get to an exchange house, they already have pesos and they already have dollars, regardless of what you want to do. So then if you go one way or the other, they both work quickly because you already have the money there. So you have to split into two players these types of protocols. You have to have the person that wants the liquidity, that wants to exchange one asset for another, and a, another person who has the liquidity and wants yield on their investment. Now the question is, at what price do we exchange? And that is normally in a centralized setting a very easy question. What does the central bank says my currency is worth or the other one? But it doesn't work when we're talking about a decentralized setting, because who can we trust? So the first liquidity pools actually had what we call an oracle. An oracle, you're basically pulling information from the outside or using an API to connect to Binance and just get the pricing from Binance all the time. The problem is it can be abused, manipulated, or just have human error, which is undesirable. So maybe, for instance, if you're using Kraken's API, maybe somebody from Kraken can feed you the wrong information through the Oracle and exploit the capital from, from your liquidity pools. So then we need to get rid of the Oracle. So then came the automatic market makers. In our automatic market makers, the pricing is just a ratio between one asset and another. So if you have 10 Bitcoins and you have $100,000 um, USDT, for instance, Tether, then each Bitcoin has a cost of $10,000 because that's the ratio that they have in the protocol. Now, this has another problem because if the price of an asset is dictated by its ratio, when somebody comes and transacts, let's say from those 10 Bitcoins, transacts five, let's say they take five and put in $50,000, all of a sudden we have five Bitcoin and $150,000, so the ratio changed. And therefore, the pricing changed. So now the price in the exchange is incorrect. And what will need to happen is for somebody else to come in and put the price back in order by buying the USDT that's cheap and selling it somewhere else, or buying Bitcoin somewhere else and selling it in that liquidity pool since the Bitcoin there is expensive. In that act, which we call arbitrage, there's a capture of value. And that capture of value has to come from somewhere. We're not creating money out of the blue. So that value comes from the capital investors. Now, what would that mean? Well, capital investors sometimes lose money in these types of things, which is very, very bad. It's not desired. Because if capital investors have even a remote chance of losing money, why would they invest? Why would they provide liquidity? So then liquidity will not grow rapidly. It will grow very slowly, sometimes even decrease with time. So then this is not good enough. So what did Thorchain do to fix this? 
well, there's a lot of great design decisions that came into this protocol. First, in other exchange protocols that are decentralized, liquidity pools, they have one liquidity pool per asset pair. What that means is if we have four assets, let's say Ether, UZT, Link, and Maker, you have one pool for Ether with Link, one pool for Ether with UZT, one pool for Ether with Maker, one pool for Link with Maker, one pool for USDT with Maker, and one pool for USDT with Link. Now, that was a lot of pools. And when we're talking about just 1,000 assets, we would have to have 499,500 pools for each pair. That's not scalable. And the problem with that is if you have a lot of pools, these pools are very shallow. And a shallow pool has several problems. First, it can be brought out of balance very easily. Since it's shallow, it has very few assets. So a normal transaction will just bring it out of balance. The deeper the pool, the bigger the transaction has to be to bring the pool out of balance. Another problem is not only bringing out of balance uh, a liquidity pool, but that the liquidity pool is simply not deep enough for good transactions. So then that's undesirable. The less pools we have, the better. So what Maya does is it has one native asset called Cacao, native to its blockchain, which is the exchange pair for all liquidity pools. That means you have just one pool for Ether with Cacao, one pool for Tether with Cacao, one pool with, for Link with Cacao. And when you're swapping between assets, let's say Ether for Link, what actually happened is Ether was converted to Cacao and then to Link. That way we have a lot less pools in the game. Another thing Maya does is charge a sleep fee. This sleep fee is very interesting since what we are doing is charging for the disequilibrium of the liquidity pool when a transaction happens. So if you're talking about a pool that's 10 Bitcoin deep and somebody wants to exchange five Bitcoins, this is bringing the pool a lot out of balance. So we're going to charge a lot for that transaction. And we're talking like quite a lot. For instance, for uh, bringing a pool only 10% out of balance, we will charge them 50% of their exchange. So it's very obvious the person doing that transaction will decide not to do the transaction and that's fine with us. We prefer not to have a transaction that brings the pool out of balance since that would permit arbitrage to capture value out of, out of our investors, which we don't want. So then let them go somewhere else or if they want to do it because they have a rush, then they have to pay for the, for the privilege. This way, we have two very good advantages. First, we are charging more for transactions that bring us out of balance, and we can also charge more cheaply for transactions that are very small relative to the depth of the pool. And also, we, our native token, Cacao, captures a lot of the value of the network, since it has a lot of utility. It's needed to exchange between assets. So it captures the net worth of the network in a way that we will discuss later on. Another great thing about Maya is, together with ThorChain, the only decentralized way to really earn yield in native Bitcoin, which is something very powerful. There's a lot of people with Bitcoin 
it's the crypto with most liquidity out there and they really have no way to earn yield in a decentralized way. So what is the exchange addressable market and how much are these exchanges worth? Well, first let's differentiate between the two main types of exchanges. The centralized exchanges, which we will now call SEX, and the decentralized ones, which are called DEX for short. Now, we currently believe that market should trend towards DEX. The reason being, well, first of all, at the beginning, 100% of exchanges were central. Now it's just 95% of trades. And in one sense, it's unavoidable that some centralized exchange movement will always happen. The reason being, it's the easier, easiest to adopt. So it's more easy to use for newcomers, and it's okay for people to exchange fiat money in exchange for crypto money. So that's all good and fine, but eventually, once more people are in the market, then they are in the market and they get more educated into crypto, this percentage will be lowered. And that market share will have to be taken by DEX protocols. Now, every 24 hours, $135 billion are transacted of crypto in centralized exchanges and $6 billion in decentralized exchanges. ThorChain's maximum volume one day was $32 million. So we're talking about 0.02% of transactions. So then you would say, why invest, invest in ThorChain? Why are we replicating ThorChain's protocol and not another? Well, many of these innovations that we'll discuss later on are still not clear to the market. But more importantly, ThorChain is just much better at capturing value for its network holders. What do I mean? Well, the top 10 decentralized exchanges manage around 75% of the 24-hour volume of transactions every single day. And they're roughly worth, if you sum their market caps, $20 billion. Where ThorChain just has 0.5% of DEX market share, and they're worth 2 billion, 10% of 20 billion. If you do a brief calculation, you will see that Thorchain is 15 times better at capturing value than all the rest of the top 10 decentralized exchanges. In the long term, we believe this will bring more people to add liquidity to protocols that emulate Thorchain's model, which is why we chose them to base ourselves off of. Additionally, as DEX market share grows from the total share of exchange from 5% towards 10 or 20%, ThorChain and Maya's share will also increase together with them. And if, for instance, eventually ThorChain reaches 10% of the market share of transactions, then, well, the sky is the limit for its valuation. So what is cacao? Well, today, Cacao, as you know, is the main ingredient to prepare chocolate. But in antiquity, it was a medium of exchange and commerce for pre-Hispanic culture in what today is the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, where Maya culture strived. Now, in Maya protocol, cacao is its native token, which has a lot of utility. First, it secures assets. It also pairs liquidity. It captures value of the protocol through its assets under management or total 
total value locked. It's also used to pay swap fees and a bridge of value to avoid having to use an oracle. Lastly, it's also a token for governance, for taking decisions on which new assets to bring into the protocol. Now, let's go through each of them. Well, in the sense of securing asset, node operators of the protocol which secure the blockchain have to bond cacao as a warranty. This bond, if they act correctly, they will get a great yield on it. If they don't, it would get slashed and they can lose a lot of their investment. So this keeps them in check. Then for pairing liquidity, we already discussed this, but every pool has cacao as its asset pair in the liquidity pool. So this way we have way less pools and for swaps between different assets, they just go through cacao very easily. How cacao captures value, that's a very interesting topic on how to evaluate the protocol, which we'll, we will also discuss moving forward. And then paying swap fees. Well, that's, that's pretty obvious. One cacao is paid every time a transaction happens, which is very cheap. And the reason it can be cheap is because Tendermint as a whole for a backend technology is very powerful and lets us do a lot of transactions very cheaply. Since we don't need hard computing power, then we have, we have no problem with this. Doing some sort of analogy here, which is very interesting, the cacao tree had to be cut when we harvest it, so it doesn't grow a lot. If it grows a lot, instead of using the tree's energy to create more cacao or to make bigger fruit, it just focuses on growing. In some sort of sense, we also limit the growth of Maya by limiting the supply of cacao to 500 million tokens. This way, we have a limited supply and we create a scarcer asset. So when we start, cacao will have some emission schedule that you can review on our website. But over time, the inflation will become smaller and smaller. And after 10 years, the 500 million cacao will be printed and that's it. No more cacao ever. We will never print one more token of cacao. Although how Maja works is somewhat complex, for the, for the end user it's actually pretty straightforward and simple. You just have to log into our website, go to the launch app button, connect your wallet and go through with your, with your swap. So I, I will go in a bit of more detail but I would like to first mention the most important thing is you don't need any previous knowledge. You don't need an ID or to log in with your email. There's no KYC. And you just need to know how much you want to send and if you're agreeing with the rate that you get. So if you already have MetaMask or another wallet that we support, you just connect it. If you do not, then you can create a new wallet directly in our user interface and you will get as always your seed phrase don't lose that and you are have full custody and responsibility over your funds when you click swap you just have to choose which asset you're swapping from you have to have balance of that asset on your wallet and to what address you want to receive the other token that you chose uh, to convert now these 
it's important that we typically put the address that's connected to your wallet for the recipient address, but you can also even change it. So let's say there's somebody that wants to get paid in Bitcoin, but you have only USDT. Instead of having to swap and then send the Bitcoin, you can do that in one movement, avoiding fees and making everything just more quickly and easy. So when you're doing all of this, you get a, you'll get a few fees. These fees are the network fees on each of the chains, the typical fee that we charge, which is one cacao, which will be charged in either of the coins from the swap, and a sleep fee, which will be very, very small if, you're, if your swap is small relative to the depth of the pool, or this can be very big. What you can do is limit your sleep tolerance to 3 or 5%, for instance, so that if you don't check the fee by mistake, the transaction doesn't go through because you don't agree to such a big sleep. That way you will never have an accident. And that's it. Again, just go in, connect your wallet, choose the assets, do the swap. As easy as that. So how does it actually work? Well, there's two senses to this explanation. First, there's the accounting, and the other one I would call the operational. On the accounting side, if you change, for instance, Bitcoin to Ethereum, well, two pools benefited of this transaction. First, the pool of Bitcoin with Cacao, and then second, the pool of Cacao with Ethereum, since both pools were used when using this transaction. And both pools will benefit of the transaction fees that the user paid. So that's pretty simple. But how does it actually work operationally? How does Maja work? Well, that's actually a very good question. When you deposit Bitcoin to a Maja address of Bitcoin, you deposit it with certain instructions, which if you're using a user interface, the user interface would handle these instructions for you automatically. What it basically says in a very undetailed way is what asset you want and to what address you want that new asset sent to. So let's say you say you want ETH and you want it to a certain address. Now, that Bitcoin will be received in a vault that is controlled by all Maja node operators. Now, they, they all are party or multi-signatures to that wallet address. So by code and in the way that Maja is designed, 67% of nodes have to acknowledge that they received Bitcoin to that address. And how they do that? Well, all Bitcoin transactions are openly available. All Magic nodes also run a full node in Bitcoin and in Ethereum and in all supported chains. And what happens then is they give the task to only one node to actually pay out whatever the instructions of that transaction said to do. So now another node pays the appropriate amount of ETH to the wallet that you set. Now, the reason why these nodes do this and they, for instance, don't steal the funds is they gave bonds. And the bonds are always worth at least twice as much as the funds that they're handling. That way, they're always honest, since if they're not, the network actually benefits because we get twice as much as they stole. So it doesn't make any sense for them. Then, basically, nodes benefit off of all of this because they are also getting a cut from the fees and the capital investors for both the Bitcoin and Ether 
liquidity pools benefit from their cut. It's important to me to repeat that this is all by code. This is all a protocol. So when we're talking about 67% of nodes acknowledging or one node executing a transaction, it's not like they're physically there. They're all running the same code, Maja chain code, which is open source and available online. And they always do the same thing if the instructions are there. Now, what could happen is that one node has a different code maliciously or by mistake. Well, it's not a problem since we're doing what 67% of nodes dictate to do. So if one node has something different, that will not happen because we just care about the 67% consensus. Capital investors, or as they also call in the industry, liquidity providers, deposit their assets in liquidity pools and earn yield in return. Now, it's very important that these people are taken care of. For us, they're first-class citizens, the VIPs. Why? Well, if we create an environment where liquidity providers are happy and they're getting returns on their investment and they're not losing any money and they're treated as they should, then more liquidity will come to the protocol. If more liquidity comes, then we will have deeper pools. If we have deeper pools, the sleep fees will decrease because a transaction of the same size will be in a deeper pool, so it will not bring it out of balance, so we won't charge as much for it. And if the sleep fees are smaller, then it's cheaper and more people will come and swap since the amount of money people have to pay for swaps is one of the most important reasons why they use one protocol or another. Now, they don't only get rewards from the swaps happening and the transactions, but they also get rewards directly in cacao because how cacao is emitted, which we will call, talk more about the emission schedule later, is uh, directly emitted to liquidity providers and node operators. So most of cacao is given to those that give life to the protocol. So they're actually getting the advantage of the mission of cacao. Now, this will only last for the first 10 years while cacao is fully emitted. But in the meantime, they uh, will get this extra reward. And after 10 years, the protocol should be sustainable by itself. Now, these rewards are paid each block. So they're actually earning yield in real time. And there are no limits on when to withdraw. So they can actually withdraw whenever they want. So if they feel that they need the money for something else or that they're not getting enough yield or that their money has better use anywhere, there's no lock period or anything. We do have, though, impermanent loss insurance, which we will cover next episode if you're interested in that. Um, and they don't only get fees from swappers, normal day-to-day -day swappers, but also arbitrage traders pay all of these fees. So basically, liquidity providers always win in Maya protocol. What is impermanent loss? And we're talking about different types of exchanges. Basically, we said that when we take out an oracle and we have an automatic market maker, the ratio of the assets determines the price of the assets. So this brings imbalance when the price changes in the market or when there's a very big transaction, the pool is brought out of balance the pricing of the assets changes. And in order to be brought back into balance, 
there's some trading activity from, from arbitrage that captures part of the value of the capital. This value has to come from somewhere. This somewhere is the, the money of capital investors or liquidity providers. And therefore, sometimes, especially when there's a very rapid change in price between one asset and the other, there's a very heavy loss from the capital of investors, which is very undesirable. It's very inconvenient if you tell somebody, look, invest $100,000. You might win 20%, but you might also lose 10%. Obviously, we will not get the type of institutional or conservative investors that we would like to have in, in these liquidity pools. So we also talked a bit about the solution, which is charging a slip fee, which if they bring the pool out of balance, they have to pay for that changing of balance. And the traders also, when they bring it back into balance, they have to also pay the slip fee. So there's less capture of value. But there's still some arbitrage to be had, and there's still some value captured. It's way smaller than in other protocols, but it's still there. And we cannot have it there. We already talked about our liquidity providers being VIP, and we cannot put their assets into risk. So what we have is an impermanent loss insurance. Now, this insurance is also programmed into code. So it's not something that's decided or that you have to call your insurer or anything. Basically, the code when a liquidity provider needs to withdraw and the code identifies that they had some impermanent loss, they will pay the impermanent loss to the liquidity provider at that point in time so that their loss is covered. Now, in order to incentivize liquidity providers to stay longer and for it not to be a profit-seeking activity, what we do is we insure 1% per day of providing liquidity. So if we have a provide, liquidity provider come in uh, after 20 days, if they withdraw, they are insured for 20% of their impermanent loss. That will we ensure that the, the liquidity providers are not just jumping around and looking to have impermanent loss. And where is this insurance coming from? Well, from the whole protocol. All pools before paying out the node operators and the liquidity providers for their fees, they look if in that block there was any withdrawal, the impermanent loss of that withdrawal will be paid, and then the rewards will be shared. Now the question would be, why would everybody pull in to ensure these impermanent losses? Well, if there are no impermanent losses in Maya, and everybody always wins, we will get more liquidity. And as we will see later, the more liquidity Maya has, the more cacao is worth. And all liquidity providers and all node operators hold cacao. So we're all interested in more liquidity into the network. That way, we actually create a liquidity black hole. Everybody always wins when they come to Maya. Providing liquidity is also very simple in Maya. You just have to go to the website, mayaprotocol.com swap connect your wallet, and you have to have bought cacao before. You can buy it directly on Maya or in the broad market. Then you have roughly 50% of cacao and 50% of the other asset in dollar value. Once you're there, then what you need to do is just put the amount. It will automatically complete for the other 50% of the asset and click add liquidity. You're ready. 
you're now a capital investor in Maya Protocol. We've talked about arbitrage and how it captures value from liquidity pools. So it obviously looks like something undesirable. And although a large capture of value in a protocol that's not well designed is bad, in Maya Protocol, the arbitrage we have is good. Why? Well, what arbitrage does is connect us to the broad market. So Maya Protocol is self-sustaining and it's kind of cut off from the real world. And the people who actually bring the pricing from the outside world to Maya are people that are constantly looking for arbitrage opportunities between Maya and other exchanges, be it central or decentralized exchanges. So how that works is basically maybe they find that Bitcoin is cheap in Maya protocol at this point in time due to some pricing change or maybe a big transaction that came through. Well, what they can do is buy that cheap Bitcoin in Maya and sell it somewhere else. In the other hand, if it, the Bitcoin would be expensive, they can buy Bitcoin somewhere else and sell it in Maya. That way they have a profit. Now remember, these people are also swappers. They also pay the normal fees and the slip fees. So if this percentage change is very big and the transaction is big relative to the liquidity depth, then they are paying a big slip fee, which goes to the capital investors. If there ever was an impermanent loss because of a lot of arbitrage activity going on because of a very volatile market, we will insure the capital investors anyway, the liquidity providers. So it's not a problem. So arbitrage is necessary. We even create bots for them that are pre-programmed that they can just custom customize for their needs so that they can actually do this arbitrage activity freely and happily. They can do this permissionless and it ensures that our pricing reflects the real world pricing. In other protocols that are built on top of an existing blockchain, they don't have to worry about their security. Security is already provided by the underlining protocol of that blockchain. So Uniswap, well, the actual people protecting Uniswap are Ethereum node operators. In our case, we have our own node operators. And what they're doing is basically running code on their computers. And this code, what it does is monitor, validate, and transmit transactions inside the protocol. What they get in exchange for this service are rewards. They get yield, and this yield comes from the, they're cut from reward fees, they're cut from fees paid by swappers and traders, and the emission schedule of cacao that's inherently programmed into the protocol. Now what they have to do is pay a bond, and this bond ranges between 800,000 and 1 million cacao. And this bond assures that they are always keeping honest. If they're not honest, if they run malicious code, if they try to steal funds, if they're not active enough or not doing their service diligently, then their funds are slashed and they lose money. So they don't want to lose money. We assume they're rational actors and they run and protect the network. And since their bond is in cacao, they're also invested into the protocol and want the protocol to succeed. What they also do is run full nodes in other networks. So just as they have a node for Maya, they have a full node on Bitcoin, another full node on Ethereum, another full node on Bitcoin Cash, for instance. Now, these are not mining nodes. They're just full nodes. They're, they have direct contact to the chain, the longest chain and the transactions happening. So it's never 
a problem for them to know the direct information of which is the longest chain of the supported chains. Now, these nodes are anonymous, where in other places, for instance, that have proof of stake, there's this like marketing activity to delegate funds. There's no delegation and no marketing involved in the design of Maya protocol. And these nodes are actually cycled every three days. That way we also avoid any cooperation between them that can run into malicious activity. Now, good behavior, what does good behavior mean? Well, since they're all running the same code, they should all get the same result. As long as you are between the majority, the absolute majority, which is 67%, and deciding the same thing, your means the code is okay, and it means you're being a good node, so you get rewards. If you're acting against the majority, then you're a bad node and you get slashed. So another important thing is they get the same rewards regardless of how much bond they provided. So if there are 30 nodes, each node is getting 1 30th of their rewards. Now, the reason for this is we don't want them competing and trying to get delegation or doing this marketing activity again. We want them anonymous. Now, then what is the incentive to give a good bond? Well, there's actually a waiting list to become a node and to get yield in Maya protocol. And the person that gets in from the waiting list is the person that bonded most cacao from the waiting list. That way we create a competition of having more bond before they actually join and not during their node activities. Basically game theory working for us. We talked about cycling of nodes that happens every three days. We call this a churning event. And churning events, basically, three or four nodes are kicked out, and then four or five nodes are brought in if the network is expanding. If the network is not expanding, the same amount of nodes that went out come back in. Now, the people that are chosen to come in are the ones that posted a bigger bond when they committed to the waiting list of the network. The people that are brought out, however, is basically the people that worst behaved. So if people stole phones, they're brought out. If nobody stole phones, but there are some people that maybe had downtime of their servers, they're brought out. And if everybody just behaved perfectly, then random nodes will be kicked out. This always ensures that the list of nodes is fresh and changing and unpredictable. Now, people can also leave the network if they want. What they basically do, I know they can just put a, on a request to leave. And after some time, that request will be accepted automatically by the code and a churn event will happen. There's also banning. If a node really, really is a bad node, they can be banned from the network. And the most important thing is the nodes are getting rewards for all of the blocks they commit. So the more uptime they have from the servers, the more they earn. What happens more technically is there's a wallet, for instance, a Bitcoin wallet, which we call a vault. That vault has all nodes as multi-signatures. And when the churn event happens, a new vault is created with the new nodes and all the funds from the old vault is sent to the new vault. And that ensures that the network is being renewed. That old vault will still be supported for a few days. And after that time, 
it will be completely retired and no funds can be recuperated from it. So if you're using Maya protocol manually and not using any user interface, please keep this in mind. Another great feature of these churn events, aside from avoiding collusion from nodes and all that, is updating the code. If you've ever used Uniswap, you're probably using Uniswap v2 or v3. There's only been three versions of Uniswap in many years. The reason being, it's smart contracts. Other protocols, for instance, Bitcoin, suffer updates very rarely because it's very difficult to get everybody in line to do an update. Here it's very easy. Every time there's a churnout and churning event, nodes have to update their code. If they all agree on the code and 67% of the nodes have the new code, the new code is the norm. If they don't, because maybe they don't agree with the code that was developed, they can just choose not to update and that's okay as well. That way nodes protect the network from malicious updates if the development team or the community is not to be trusted at some point in time. In summary, updating other blockchains is a nightmare. Updating Maya is a breeze, so much so that Maya and Thorchain are already on version 70 of the protocol, whereas again, Uniswap is just on version 3. So you tell me what's more in line with modern ways of doing things. I'd like to talk about in a bit more detail what the code is and how it's programmed for the technical people out there listening to this podcast. The code is programmed using Cosmos SDK, which is development kit written and created by the Cosmos team, which is great technology for all of this. And Cosmos uses Tendermint BFT for the consensus protocol. Cosmos is mainly programmed in Golang, a language developed by Google some of years ago, and it's roughly 100,000 lines of code. So it's, it's a huge undertaking that Thorchain went through to create this project. The code is available in GitLab. Basically, if you put on Google GitLab, Maya Chain or Maya Code, you will be able to find the project repository and it's completely open source. Anybody can contribute. Uh, basically, you can start writing code right then or you can find us via Twitter, send us a DM or join the Discord or Telegram and ask us for some tasks to do and we will be very happy to have you join the team contribute and obviously earn cacao doing it. So this is open source. This is new frontiers, new technology being developed every day. So happy to have you. We've explained what node operators are and we've explained what liquidity providers are. And we've always mentioned that this is a decentralized protocol. So that means it has to be permissionless. Anybody that wants to become a node should be able to. Anybody that wants to become a liquidity provider should be able to. So this brings up a problem because we discussed how nodes have to give up a bond that uh, they get yield for, but it's also slashed if they misbehave. And this bond is basically an insurance where if a node misbehaves or compromises funds from liquidity providers, well, they lose part of their funds. Uh, as well. So they're always incentivized to behave correctly. Now, if that's the case, 
and anybody can just add liquidity to the point where there's more liquidity than there are bonds, then these funds would be insecure. And we don't want that, remember. Liquidity providers are VIPs, first-class citizens. Their funds should always be protected. So what was implemented in the design of the protocol was an incentive pendulum. What that means is the more liquidity there is, the, li the less liquidity providers earn and the more node operators earn to disincentivize liquidity providers to join and incentivizing more nodes to join. So we're back into a safe state. Alternatively, or conversely, if there are too many bond from nodes, then that's also undesirable. The capital is inefficient. Basically, we have a lot of bonds and not enough liquidity to back it up and to create swapping activity, which ultimately brings revenue to the protocol. So in that case, the reverse is true. We will decrease the node operator's rewards and increase the liquidity provider's rewards so more liquidity providers join and even some nodes leave, which is okay, remember. We want a protocol in a stable state. That stable state is twice as much bonds for assets in the network. So because of that, that stable state is twice as many bonds in dollar value as there are external assets in the network. And in order to achieve this, what we do with this incentive pendulum is in a steady state, nodes get 67% of their rewards and liquidity providers get 33% of their rewards. The reason being, nodes need to commit to way much more capital for the bonds and they also have to invest in servers, cloud computing and running the nodes, whereas liquidity providing is a much more passive activity. And if this stable state is there, the rewards stay the same. And if it starts moving in any of the two directions, it will slowly create a disincentive to getting out of this equilibrium, which is the reason why it's called an incentive pendulum. It's always going back and forth, back and forth, the steady state being the middle. I love to explain by analogy, so here's one that you will like. Let's say you have $1,000. Then you need a vault, somewhere to have it safe. Now that vault should not be too expensive. If it's too expensive, it doesn't make any sense. It's very little money, too much security. That's undesirable. Conversely, you don't want a million dollars in a folder or just, you know, in a drawer. That's not safe enough for a lot of funds. You always want them to be kind of roughly in the same ballpark. If you have a million dollars, you probably want a nice, metallic, expensive vault. And if you have a thousand dollars, well, it's fine to maybe put it in the drawer. There's a term called total value lock or total lock value, depending on who you're talking with. And this is a term that's a measure for how much money is invested in decentralized finance. Now, typically, it, it is a great way to understand more or less the popularity or value of a network or a protocol. But it's not tightly linked to the value of the token of that protocol. That's not true in Maya. The total value locked is directly related to the value of cacao. Why? 
in a steady state, as we discussed last episode, roughly there's twice as much bonds as external assets on the network. But also, liquidity providers, when they invested those external assets, they had to also buy as much cacao in dollar value as there were external assets. So if you do the count, you'll see that for every dollar of external assets, there's $3 of cacao. And that's what we like to call the book value of the network. The network is always worth at least three times the total value locked. And this is very powerful. Why? We finally have a real way to value a protocol. If you're talking, for instance, about Bitcoin, people normally use the stock and flow model, but it's still not accurate to the dollar. And we're still not certain if it will actually hold in the future. If you're talking about Ethereum, well, we typically use the network value, which is also a rough estimation, but it's not exact in any way. How much is one node worth? How much is one user worth? Really, nobody knows. But in the case of Maya, we're always worth at least three times our total value locked, and that's a definite. Even Thorchain has never been below this book value. It actually has been above it. Why? Well, if you expect Thorchain to keep fixing more value into their system, then you're open to invest a slight premium over this book value, since you know that this book value will increase. That is why Thorchain's value has actually typically been between five and seven times this book value that we mentioned. This is the core reason why Maya is much better at capturing value than other protocols, since it's directly proportional to its ability to lock external assets. Now, it might sound a bit iffy, you know? How come? Or, well, well, it sounds a bit dreamy that just if you get more liquidity, you're worth more. Well, it's actually very simple. If you suddenly lock a lot of liquidity, that does not warrant enough asset swap activity, then there will not be enough revenues in the system to sustain that liquidity and people will leave, which is okay. In the other hand, if there is enough revenues coming in, more people will join and the liquidity will increase and therefore the value will as well. So in a steady state where the capital is efficient, where everybody is rational, and when the revenues sustain the liquidity, then the liquidity will remain and cacao will be worth as much. So it's not a pyramid scheme or anything. It's just the revenues of the protocol sustaining the liquidity from investors reflecting this value. Although our network works the same way as Thorchain, there's a key differentiation between Maya and Thorchain. Cacao is distributed differently. And what I mean with differently is it's distributed more to the community. The reason being, thanks to Thorchain's developments, our progress was faster and easier, and therefore we can give back much more to community members. So much so that 85% of the tokens emitted is for community members through rewards for liquidity providers, rewards for node operators, community grants, and community airdrops. Actually, 70% of cacao 
that will ever exist is emitted to liquidity providers and node operators compared to 42% from Rune in Thorchain. Now, the maximum supply is the same, 500 million. That way we can be kind of compared in equal footing. And if you want to see exactly where it's expended and how it's used and how it's emitted, you can go into our website and go to the resources section all the way to the bottom and click on a mission schedule and take a look in detail to what it entails. But in a nutshell, around 5.6% of cacaos will be emitted at Genesis and there will be higher inflation at the beginning and the inflation will stabilize all the way to zero at the end of 10 years when all cacaos are printed and distributed. Now, having more cacaos giving to community is great since we're incentivizing good behavior, people participating, joining, and becoming part of this great movement. One other great thing is the team has skin in the game. The cacao that we get for operating and working the protocol is minted over 10 quarters, so two and a half years, where we have to make sure the protocol works and grows and acquires a higher valuation and more liquidity is brought in and we're directly invested in the success of Maya over the long term. Some part is also for reserves. These reserves serve as a kind of buffer that will be invested uh, in providing liquidity as well for the network to stabilize the liquidity. But it also serves as a way that should any problem arise, the funds will come from the reserve to cover any issue. We will also be looking at getting some insurance against hacking, although a key strength we have is Thorchain protocol has already been battle-tested. They have already been audited. They are worth much more. So if anybody's getting hacked, it would be them. And part of the things we're doing is we will be updating our code between four and six weeks behind them so the version Maya is running is always battle-tested. It's always already very stable and proved to not have any loopholes or anything. The 12% of operations that the team will have will include liquidity bootstrapping, marketing expenses, DevOps, administration, team and advisors, etc. And there will also be a 3% that is given to invest early investors of the project. In Maya, we have a goal, which is to be one of the most fairly distributed coins out there. And to do that, we need to have a fair way to distribute it initially. And this is a very difficult topic since there's a lot of disagreement of what's the best way to initiate the liquidity of a protocol. Although there's some routes that are quicker and faster, they're also most likely unfair. The reason being through vehicles like IDOs that most of the tokens are actu actually end up in the hand of whales. People that come in with a huge order done programmatically and they arrive before everybody else and take most of the rewards. Now the problem with that is we don't have a protocol that's in the hands of the community. 
And it's important if we're creating a decentralized protocol that it's in the hands of everybody and everybody can participate and get a fair price. So instead of looking for the quick way out, we're going for the slow burn. Why? Because it's needed. It's needed for the long-term survival of Maya protocol. How we will achieve that is very simple. Maya protocol is in itself an exchange platform where any coin can be exchanged for cacao at the fair market value of cacao at any point in time. And if you want to give in a huge order for a lot of coins, because you're a whale, well, you'll pay the slip fee. And that slip fee is value being captured by the network from the whale. Let me explain in a bit more detail. Imagine we have a whale that has $1 million in Bitcoin and they want to buy cacao at a point in time where the depth of the pool is just 10 million Bitcoin dollars in Bitcoin uh, plus $10 million of cacao. This whale wants to buy then a million dollars of cacao. But when they actually do it, they will not end up getting a million dollars in cacao. They will actually get half, 500,000 cacao. Why? Because they're doing a very big order that might create imbalance in the network and because it's very big transaction compared to the depth of the pool, as we've discussed earlier. This extra Bitcoin paid that did not get cacao because the whale wanted a huge order will then stay in the network as total value locked. And as we've also discussed in the valuation episode, this enriches the valuation of cacao for everybody. So we get value two ways, through the fee and through more external assets in the network. In that regard, then, what a whale has to do is do a lot of small orders over different blocks over a long period of time, through which other smaller investors can also get in at that earlier valuation with less money, pay, pay less fee, and actually get a much better rate than the whale. So we're benefiting the small guy. So at any point in time, if a whale joins, it actually enriches not the protocol developers, but the community in whose hands it is, and the node operators, and the liquidity providers, and whoever holds cacao. Another thing we'll also do is airdrops. And we are still planning a few of them. Two of the most important are the first one in November. That one is for people that follow us on social media and do certain things that benefit the long term. And there we will be distributing around 1,750,000 cacaos, which are worth roughly $200,000, a bit over that, at today's valuation. And another airdrop will happen around February. And that will be distributed to all who participate in XRunes IDO. We have all their Ethereum's wallet, and we will be announcing how they can participate in this airdrop just for them. Xrune early adopters are people that really believe in decentralized liquidity, and we're very interested in having them vested in the future of Maya, just like they're vested in the future of Thorchain. Over time, we will keep airdropping. Actually, 7% of the total emission of cacao 
will be giving through airdrops. And people that get that airdrop can immediately sell that cacao or keep it for the long term or use it to provide liquidity or do whatever they want with it. It's their token. Now, you might think that such a protocol like Maya will maybe have a bit of difficulty finding lots of individuals to come and swap assets with us. And that's a legitimate statement. Luckily, that's not what we're exclusively looking for. The way we do a liquidity black hole to actually grow the valuation exponentially is to have a lot of swaps. And these swaps don't only come from the end user. The reason being that Maya is programmable and integrable to any platform out there, be it centralized or decentralized. For example, let's say there's a centralized exchange in Victoria or New York, and the centralized exchange eventually has profits, and typically they accumulate profits in BTC, which is their most liquid asset. That is okay, but maybe they don't want a huge exposure to Bitcoin on their profits since they are an exchange and the price of Bitcoin is volatile and could eventually go lower. They want to lock in their profits in, say, USDC. The issue here is that centralized exchange has three options. First, they could try to do it in their own exchange. But that takes out working capital of the available USDC that they have to exchange between users. So that's out of the question. The second option is to look for peer-to-peer. -peer. The problem with peer-to-peer -peer is it's unscalable. They cannot find every month somebody to change their huge assets of Bitcoin to dollars in a scalable way. So what they typically have to do is go out to another central exchange and feed their competition. And the problem with that is they also suffer all of the centralized issues of these bigger exchanges. So what can they do? They can put a little bit of code in their platform where, for instance, every time a certain amount of Bitcoin is accumulated, said, say $100 million, they change $25 million from Bitcoin to USDC. Problem solved. They'll be using a decentralized protocol, not feeding their competition, doing it in a way that they always have custody of the coins, and it is done immediately at market price. What more can they ask for? This demand for liquidity will in turn keep attracting more and more liquidity to Maya to serve these types of use cases. And this cycle will continue. Another thing that another platform can do, say a wallet, is offer a way for their users to exchange between assets using Maya. The end user will probably never know they used Maya, just as maybe you never knew you use certain banking protocols when you're using the bank. There, let's say, they already have a way to have Bitcoin and Ether. And if a client of theirs wants to change between them, instead of having the transaction go out through another exchange, they can simply use Maya. The question is, why would they? The answer is simple. In the code that they program 
into that exchange, they can add uh, what is called an affiliate code. This affiliate code is then related to their Maya wallet. And every time there's a transaction, they can decide how much to mark up the fees of the transaction. And those extra fees, they will not go to Maya. They will go directly to the company or business person. So they have an incentive to integrate Maya into the back end of their wallet. And they can also integrate Thorchain, and that's great. There's a need for Visa, and there's a need for MasterCard. When we're talking about the back end of crypto, we need backup. We need a second option. It's so important to have a reliable underlying network of available liquidity that is decentralized. And we cannot rely on just one option for that. If we really want to create a liquidity black hole, providing liquidity in the normal sense of the word is not enough. There are different use cases. Some people want a slightly risked, but with more upside option of providing liquidity the normal way, 50-50, and getting exposure to both assets. But there are some people that instead prefer a conservative yield on their assets that is always the same, very predictable, and constant. And they don't want exposure to any other assets such as cacao. That's okay. We should be able to accept those funds in a way that they benefit and we do too. And that's where Maya Synthetics come in. There's two goals to this Maya Synthetics. Make a native token in Maya that enjoys all the benefits of Tendermint and that always represents the value of another asset, say Bitcoin. And have this Bitcoin or synthetic Bitcoin earn yield or bear interest with exposure to only that asset. This synthetic we can call SBTC and just like any other asset in Tendermint has instant finality and can be transacted through IBC through the whole Cosmos network of blockchains. This asset will appreciate 15% per year, fixed. How will that happen? Well, what the user will do is mint the SBTC by adding this Bitcoin to the Bitcoin Cacao liquidity pool. This Bitcoin Cacao liquidity pool will appreciate in value because you will have more Bitcoin with which to have swaps and create revenues. And making it deeper such that we have less slip fees and a more balanced liquidity pool. Now, if you do the calculation there a bit, this SBTC is basically leverage from the liquidity pool. Why? Well, the upside of this asset being in the pool will go to the liquidity providers of the pool, not to the holder of the SBTC, because the holder of SBTC is getting a fixed fee, fixed interest of 15% per year. This means if this Bitcoin creates more fees, then the liquidity providers will get a higher yield for their investment. It also creates a bigger possibility of loss, but 
because they are all insured against the permanent loss, then this can always be at maximum zero yield. So for liquidity providers, it's obvious. They still either get zero yield or get more upside. Now, because we don't want an overleveraged protocol, the minting of SBTC will be limited to 33% of the amount of external assets in that liquidity pool. And it will allow minting or will liquidate any Bitcoin that goes up beyond that. Now think about this. How many Bitcoin maximalists are out there that are looking for ways to have that Bitcoin have some use, not only be a store of value, but use it as capital to earn yield? There's literally over a trillion dollars out there of people like this that currently have no direct way to earn interest on their native asset. Now they can. Interest-bearing cacao. A version of a synthetic asset, but that is not tradable for people that prefer to hold cacao and not hold anything else, but would love to get a yield on it. So this is for hardcore holders of the protocol that want interest on their cacao. This works very similar to synthetic assets last episode, for instance, SBTC. But instead of leveraging your synthetic asset into one liquidity pool and having that liquidity pool back your synthetic asset, interest-bearing cacao, or iCacao, will be backed by the whole Maya protocol. An interesting thing here is iCacao cannot be traded it can just be burned back into cacao. Why? Well, we don't want iCacao and cacao being on the market confusing day-to-day -day users. Cacao already has all the benefits of a synthetic asset, so no need for that. So if you want to think about it, this iCacao is basically a savings account, like you would do in your bank. You have a belief that cacao will keep increasing in value, or at least maintain it, and Instead of putting it at risk somewhere else, you hold it there, get a nice 15% interest every year, and keep increasing your capital in this high-value asset. An interesting thing is, when we reach an equilibrium in the future, where we have a lot of liquidity from Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc., Kakao will basically track the crypto market. If the crypto market goes up, then all the assets within Maya protocol with also increasing value and cacao will increase in value with them and with your interest on top. Conversely, if the crypto market goes down, cacao will also go down slightly as well. The thing is, it will not be so linear. Why? Because of the exposure of the different currencies that the most transacted currencies will have more liquidity in there. So Bitcoin, for instance. And because there are also trade of stable coins, which will also reduce volatility. So, in the long term, cacao will actually be a relatively stable asset that increases in value if the crypto market increases and the transactions, and that maintains value as well when the crypto market goes down. There are two main trends of thought out there today. One thinks that one coin will win above all others. 
and that will be adopted and all the rest will die off. There's another thought which we believe has increased over time and will keep increasing because it's the truth, which is there are very different applications and trade-offs when designing a blockchain. Sacrifices you have to take in order to be competitive in other areas. Because of this, by nature, there will be many blockchains. And the problem is, if we don't have a decentralized way to exchange them effectively, then what are we doing at all? That is why Maya and Thorchain exist. And while some may think they're competing against each other, they actually complement each other. Every dollar that stops being transacted in centralized exchanges and goes to the centralized world is a win and a net positive for both Thorchain and Maya. We actually believe many holders of Kakao will also hold Thrun in their portfolio. And we will be their backup since we will be doing updates four to six weeks behind. In any case, Thorchain cannot adopt the whole market by itself. First, they have to balance security and liquidity, as will Maya have to do. And the problem with this is they cannot satisfy the demand for decentralized liquidity fast enough by the design of their protocol. This is not a critique against their design. It's an understanding of it and a praise of it. And we want to be there to help them create this decentralized future. Another thing is eventually they will reach Tendermint's natural TPS limit, where basically they will not be able to satisfy more transactions. And again, Maya will be there to help satisfy demand. Today, Thorchain and Maya are the only ways to earn yield on native Bitcoin and native Litecoin and native Bitcoin Cash. And it will connect the multi-chain future so we can really create a decentralized world and not only do it on paper. That's why we believe it will mostly oust even Uniswap or SushiSwap and remove market from Binance Smart Chain and PancakeSwap, simplifying the market and creating an option for people to keep custody and possession of their coins at all times, even when exchanging them. We are interested in creating a community with you. We are interested in creating a community for the world of decentralized finance. A community that's willing to support, collaborate, and contribute to the growth of Maya and Thorchain and decentralized liquidity through interacting with us, our digital channels, the development of our code. We all know what happened in 2008, and we all know the incoming inflation that will come due to the pandemic. The unbanked nature of many countries in Latin America and in Africa without the ability to transact in a trusted way, in a predictable way, where they know their funds are safe. This is not only about investing, speculating, and increasing your net worth. This is about creating a more fair world for everybody out there. Decentralized liquidity will further this mission and this goal that everybody in crypto has been striving towards for the last decade 
This is part of the reason why we created this podcast, which I like to call the new white paper. Not everybody reads anymore. And we need to drive adoption to everybody out there. We also did this for transparency. And you can see that in our website, how we have all our resources out there in the open, including our code. That's why we will create brief and concise entertaining messages to reach all audiences alike. And we would love for you to support this community. I also invite for those that already supported and believe in Thorchain, a call of arms for a brotherhood among our protocols, since we are out there for the same mission. We will look towards Latin America and afterwards Asia for adoption, understanding that there are many markets and the demand for many protocols. And we will seek to add value by simplifying how we communicate and making a simple message to convey, creating campaigns to bring over people that not necessarily have been involved in DeFi for all these years, to actually start and take their first step in the world of decentralized liquidity. This is what is needed to create real adoption of decentralized exchanges. So investing in magic is actually pretty simple. If you think about it, Kakao is basically shares in the protocol. And Kakao is freely available for anyone in MajaSwap. So you can just log in to MajaProtocol.com, look for Swap, create the wallet or connect the one you already have, and get Kakao. Once you have Kakao, the best way to get exposure to the upside of Maya is to just hold it, since providing liquidity actually takes profits into the other asset that you invested with. Another good way to get more exposure is to convert your cacao to iCacao, which will make it bear interest of 15% per year. Another thing you could do is to acquire enough to run a node if you have the developmental capabilities and have experience with servers and cloud computing. The amount would have to be roughly between 800,000 and a million cacao. Now you can participate in the community, and if you use Maya enough, it will increase your chances of receiving airdrops in the future, which will be a way to acquire cacao and therefore be a holder of the future of Maya. If you're only here to know how to buy cacao and you're not interested in anything else, you can just go to mayaprotocol.com swap and connect your wallet or create a new one. For that, you need to have one of the supported coins at that point in time. At the beginning, we have USDC, BUSDC, Bitcoin, and Ether. But over time, as the community grows and the liquidity increases, more coins will be added. So just choose the one that we support and choose to receive Rune in its stead to the wallet that you connected. Agree to the, to the fees, click swap, and you're ready. You can contact us if you had any problem by your social media channels that are available in our website. And if you're interested in developing and contributing to the team, you can transform your time and abilities into cacao, since we would love to compensate you for your contributions. So that's all you need to buy cacao and form part of this community.